still my soul. Hey everybody, this is Phil. Welcome to our Bible study podcast. At the end of this study, please take the time to subscribe to the Glen Springs Church YouTube channel and check out our website. Also, if you live in the Gainesville, Florida area, we would love to have you visit us in person. For now, let's open up the Heavenly Library and may the words of the Holy Spirit sink deep into our hearts. Thanks for joining us. In every Well, as you can see, he fell us out. That was quick, wasn't it? <laughs> this was pre-planned, uh, th- this trip. Yeah, don- don't fret. But we did save Cheryl and Gray, so you can yeah, be, be, be easy. Uh, he's out in, I believe, in Arkansas preaching this week. This was pre-planned, uh, despite his uh, sad announcement to the rest of us last week. But we're looking forward to what lies ahead. We're glad you're here this morning. Uh, We hope you'll open up your Bible to study with us during this hour. I'm going to uh, appreciate what Robert had to say very much. Uh, The Passover is upon us. Next week, we're going to be having a singing. I have the privilege of doing a little bit of speaking next week, and I would encourage you to come back uh, and, and be with us then. And I'm going to be talking about 1978 a little bit, if you were with us yesterday as we gathered with the Wicks family uh, in a little different direction. We're going to talk about the resurrection changes everything. Uh, And so I hope you'll be back when we have a few moments to sing those praises and think about those things. I'm going to begin this morning a study that is the first part of a two-part lesson, if God enables, that I'm allowed to be back in about a month if we're all here and bring this to a conclusion. I'm really excited about the second lesson. So that lets you know what you're in for this morning. I need you to do whatever you need to do to help me lay this foundation. You got to stay with me. I'm going to ask you to work a little harder today. If you need to take notes, take notes. If you need to get your toothpicks out to, you know, keep your eyes pried open. Whatever it's going to take to stay with me this morning as we study together uh, and and hopefully then get prepared for what I think is a great vision uh, in the second lesson. But this important stuff, it's worth the effort that you will put forth. The book of Revelation is a, is a picture book painted with words that vividly describe the war between the kingdom of Christ and, of course, the kingdom of darkness, but supported by the kingdoms of the world. And the kingdoms of the world are led by the dragon, who from ancient times uh, was known as Satan. And they are empowered by military might economic control, and false religion. And they are characterized by an unquenchable thirst for power, wealth, domination that is fueled by hate and greed and lust and spread by brutality and exploitation and wickedness. That's the nature of that kingdom. These wage war against the Lamb who is of course, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his people. Of course, their characteristics are quite different 
And it's especially displayed, you know, we're studying the book of Ephesians, so, uh, and the church at Ephesus in particular in our theme. But the weapons of this army are very, uh, a very clear uh, indication that they are of a completely different nature. So in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6, this army is described in this way, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. And in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. A little shorter version of that can be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In the book of Revelation in chapter 17, there's a, this war is being depicted for us. It's all through the book, uh, there are images of this, and, and there is an image of it in chapter 17 of the book of Revelation. And so this chapter begins in this way. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names with seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I don't intend to do a study of Revelation 17. Uh, that's not going to be my purpose. 
Uh, hopefully one day we will study the, the book together. Uh, it has a great message for our time, but it's not what I'm going to be uh, trying to do. But trust me on this. Uh, and if you want to read uh, Homer Haley's commentary or Jim McGuigan's commentary uh, and any number of other, uh, I think, solid commentaries that uh, I'd be happy to recommend to you, you will find uh, not only the support and explanation, but that Babylon is Rome. That's, that's who is being depicted here. That's the world city that is under discussion at this particular time the capital of the great world empire that's being used as an ally of Satan in his war against God. Now, Rome becomes representative as Babylon does. This whole story of all the kingdoms of the earth, earthly kingdoms that wage war against the kingdom of righteousness. But that, that's what's happening here. But I want us to focus here later in, the, in this chapter if you drop down to verse 14, these will wage war against the Lamb. And the Lamb will overcome them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with Him are the called and chosen and faithful. And He said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits, these are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the word of God should be fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now this morning and in an God enabling the next time we're together, I want to focus particularly on that phrase related to those who are with the Lamb, the called and the chosen and the faithful. In the book of Ephesians, again, in chapter 1, and we've had some teaching on this if you've been following our uh, classes on Ephesians that Mark and Phil have been uh, doing and, and listening at many of the other lessons, but in the beginning of this book, Paul says this in chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. There's a dominant false teaching under the umbrella of Christianity. And it's both damnable and blasphemous. I'm using strong language. But it is that, and at its, at its root, it is both of those things. Now, I don't mean to say that everyone who's under its influence or has been influenced by it is going to be lost. That's not my purpose. I don't, I don't want to say that. And that will not be my judgment to make. <laughs> That's certainly true. 
But I do want to suggest to you that while many have been influenced because of others who've taught this, uh, and I think God will hold those who know better accountable for what they have done or should know better. But it comes under the umbrella, if you ever look up religious thought, under the umbrella of Reformed theology. And it's rooted in the teachings of Augustine and became very popular uh, as a result of the work of John Calvin. And you've undoubtedly, if you know much about uh, religious teaching, you've heard the term Calvinism being bandied about and used. And it's a difficult doctrine to summarize, but you need to understand it. You need to understand the language of it, which is very similar to things you and I will say and sing, but we mean different things. And that's important to understand the context in which the language is said. If I said to someone, I love your wife, you would smile and you would, and you would say, you know, I'm so happy. But I said, no, no. I mean, I, when you say I love my wife, I mean the same thing you mean. You would say, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. No, because I know what I mean. And if you mean what I mean, we've got a problem. So the context, even though we may say the same thing, it doesn't mean always that we mean the same thing. We put it in a context that we understand, and in the saying of it, in that context, we're able to take it and say, yes, that's good. I'm glad you love my wife. I hope everyone does. And we would understand it in the way that it was said. And so religious terms and things that are said and sung, and we may say, oh, amen to that. But if we understood the context and the meaning, we would say, oh, no, but I don't mean what you mean. And it's important that we wrestle with this. Augustine and Calvin believe that as a result of Adam and Eve's original sin, and I'm going to tell you some of the things we're saying, the nuances of it, it's about like studying the nuances of the periodic table. I get it. Uh, but again, stay with me. Stay with me. They believe that because of Adam and Eve's original sin, the human race became hopelessly corrupted. So the entire race... That includes the babies that you're holding in your arms this morning. Because the whole race is born as reprobates. And none are deserving of salvation. Humanity is described as a lump of sin. The human race is totally depraved. That's the race itself. Imagine, if you will, if you know how a die is made or a mold. Well, if the mold or the die is cracked, if it is hopelessly broken, then everything it stamps or produces is going to be worthless. Everything that comes out of that stamp then is not worth anything because of the way the mold is, is corrupted. And you would understand that if you got a broken mold, everything that comes out of it is, is now worthless. It, it's no longer, it's deformed, it's, it's useless. That's Augustine and Calvin's view of humanity as a result of original sin. Now, it is absolutely true that there was a fundamental change in the world as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. Death entered the world. 
And sin entered the world and began to spread. And there's no question that things changed as a result of the sin. And we do understand that. But grasp this. We are told that humanity is worthless, hopelessly broken, and that God would be just to just take the whole lump of sin, the entire mass of corruption, and and cast it off because it's full of sin and wickedness and broken completely, and God would be just to just toss the whole thing away. The Bible does teach that we all have gone the way of Adam. That is, we choose to sin. That is, once we reach a point in our lives where we're capable of making choices in relationship to our actions to sin or not to sin, that we choose just like Adam did. And that's why we are broken. Your babies who have not yet reached that point, who are not born corrupt and sin will should they live indeed the bible and our own experience tells us they will also make that decision the pressures of the world and the forces of evil that work against them will draw them in that much is true but the whole lump is just not a lump of sin that's not all the complete story of the nature of humanity. But I want you to, I want to return to Augustine and Calvin's view. And you've got to understand this, especially if you're going to understand what we are trying to preach and teach, what the men and what we sometimes call the restoration movement, and long before, but what they were saying in terms of, no, here's what the Bible is teaching. Here's the God of the Bible. But Calvinism at its root, Augustine would say, since no human being deserves the love of God. No, none of them. Humanity does not deserve the love of God. Then it takes his grace to be extended. That is undeserved love. So no one deserves that love, but God extends his grace, which is an undeserved love, by which he chooses some people who are called in Scripture the chosen, the elect. He chooses them to be saved. God decided who would be saved before we were ever born. That's the doctrine of predestination. That is, they were predestined by God for salvation by His great grace. And in fact, God made that choice before creation as part of His eternal purpose. He made that decision to extend His grace. Now, this is connected to God's sovereignty. And and that would say, according to Calvin and Augustine, God is firmly in control of everything and salvation unfolds solely in accordance with the will of God and what he has purposed. Now, this view of salvation by grace says that since it's by grace, and again, we're in agreement that grace is something that's undeserved. But since it's by grace, God made the choice without regard to anything that we would decide or we would do. Because if God considered anything we would decide or we would do, well, then he's looking at something deserving in us to make that choice. And then that's not grace. And so that, that, that can't be so. 
So God chose you to be saved before you believed in Jesus. You need to grasp that. That's really the root. He chose you to be saved before you made any decision that you would submit to him. And that's why free will has nothing to do with salvation according to this view. Free will has nothing to do with it because your will has nothing to do with God's gracious choice. Your will has nothing to do with God as sovereign, his decision to give undeserved love to those whom he has chosen to grant it. Now, you need to understand this. When, when you hear preachers talk about salvation by faith alone, in the context of Augustine and Calvin's theology, when you choose to let Jesus into your heart and believe, salvation is the result of that only in the sense that that is the moment that you receive what you were predetermined to, to receive. That just is the moment that you are granted what you had already been granted. That's when you realize here on earth what God had already predetermined before you were ever born. It may manifest itself in your belief, but that had nothing to do with God's choice. God made that choice beforehand. You believe because you were chosen to believe. You believe because salvation is something God chose to give to you. Salvation comes to you because God gave you his grace and chose to extend it to you, though you didn't deserve it. So Reformed theology teaches that God predetermined your salvation. Faith is merely the means by which he manifests that you have been chosen by God and are one of the elect. And that grace is bestowed unconditionally. Therefore, it's not conditioned on your baptism. It isn't conditioned on your repentance. It's not conditioned on your confession. It's not conditioned on your faith. None of those things had anything to do with God's choice. God just made the choice because no one deserved it. And God extended undeserved love as he in his wisdom and in his grace saw fit to do it. So it has nothing to do with anything about you. If you are saved and you look across and you say uh, to someone who's not saved, God didn't choose you because there was something better about you than the other person. If that's the reason, then Calvin and Augustine would say, well, then there's something deserving. And that's not grace. No, it has to be. He's got to be just as worthless as the other fellow. Now, there is reality in this. We all who are sinners come to God as sinners in need of God's pardon and grace on the same level. But you must grasp that all of this is a choice according to this doctrine God is making even before we come into existence. And since you've been chosen for salvation by the sovereign will of God, when the Holy Spirit comes to place his seal upon you, that grace then is irresistible. How could you resist it? Think about it. Because if it was predetermined by God, who is sovereign, 
And then how could you refuse what God has already determined to grant? Well, that doesn't make sense. And so if God has already determined it, you can't refuse it. You can't resist it. It doesn't have anything to do with whether you want it or not. God has made the choice. And since it comes to you by that sovereign choice, not only can you not refuse it, you could never lose it. How can you lose what God has already predetermined that you're going to receive? How could you lose that? It's a consistent doctrine with itself. It's just not consistent with the Bible. Now, you need to grasp the nuances of this because then the means and methods by which God brings salvation to the elect, whatever you may list, whether it's preaching or teaching, whether it's raising your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, have nothing to do with the success or failure. It was predetermined. So you parents who are praying for your children, you parents who are telling them the story of Jesus and you're providing them with a godly example and you're applying the principles of Jonadab that Phil taught us about from Jeremiah 35, if you fail in all of those efforts, well, it just wasn't meant to be. They weren't chosen. That's why they didn't take to what you were. They just weren't one of the chosen. There was nothing you really could do about it. On the other hand, if they are one of the chosen, you cannot fail. You will not fail because they're chosen. Now, I want to let you stop and let your eyes roll back into place. So what do you do with passages like 1 John 2 and verse 2 that say he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world? Well, if you are one of the fortunate chosen <laughs> discussing this, if you would say, well... The death of Christ was sufficient to save the whole world, but it's efficient only to save those whom God has chosen. That's the doctrine of limited atonement. Now, I agree with the statement as I would understand it. That is, the blood of Christ is sufficient to save the whole world. I, I agree with and I have to say, I agree that it's only efficient for those who have received Christ and are saved by his blood and those in whom it works, those who have received it, come into connection with it, that not everyone is going to be saved. And since I'm convinced that not everyone can be saved and will be saved, then I must conclude that in that regard, the blood of Christ is efficient only for some. That I agree with. Well, why isn't everybody saved then? If it's sufficient to save everyone, well, because God didn't choose to save everyone. I agree with that. He didn't. But not in the way the Calvinist is teaching. When the Calvinist says it, he's saying God did not will to save 
everyone. He didn't desire and choose it because it wasn't his will to do so. That's the answer that would be given. And so if someone is grappling and says, well, why did God choose me? Well, the answer, and I've listened and heard this answer, well, because God chose you because of his grace. Praise God for his undeserved love. You don't have to understand why he chose you. Just rejoice in it. God cast his love for it toward you because he's love. Well, that's great. I, I can get into that. But what about these others who are left damned? Well, it's not for us to say. It's just part of the mystery of salvation. It's a mystery we don't understand. To hell with that. To hell with that. Because that is a theology that says a false and horrible thing about the true and living and loving God. And I will not stand and allow it to pass without saying what needs to be said. Yes, it makes my blood boil. I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm not mad at any of you. I'm not mad with anybody except those who are trying to Pass this upon people who should know better. I'm sorry for those who get caught up in it. But the truth needs to be preached and what who God is needs to be declared. And the gospel needs to be shared in a way that everyone can see the glory of the real God, who the real God who loves everybody and has made salvation available to everybody and who wants all men to enjoy it if they will. That's the God of the Bible. And if you're a little angry with me, well, just think about Paul in the book of Galatians. You know, he had a lot to say about severing in Galatians. And he said, you know, if you receive circumcision, if you receive that cutting off, you're cutting off yourself from Christ. You're severing yourself from Christ. And then later in the book, he says, I wish those who were trying to tell you to be circumcised would cut themselves off. Now, that some translations say mutilate themselves, and, and maybe that's, a, but I believe it's really a play on words with that indicated, but it's again the severing. I wish they'd be severed. Severed from you, even as they were severing themselves. If you read early in the book, they were holding themselves off from the Gentiles. They had severed themselves, and Paul said, I wish they'd be severed completely, because they're teaching you something that is contrary to the, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's a damnable thing they're telling you. The real reason they were teaching it, Paul says in chapter 6 and verse 12, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. That was the real reason. And I'll tell you, tell you that I believe that there are many who hold on to these teachings because they don't want to be cut off and come under the pressure of, of Protestant theology that for the great majority is, is holding on to this. They don't want to have to pay the price to stand up and say, no, it's not true. Now, let me tell you the truth about God briefly and the good news that he is 
given us to share, and then we're going to pick it up in a few weeks in all of its glory, God enabling. Jesus of Nazareth is God's chosen one. He is God's elect servant. If you go back to Isaiah in chapter 42, Isaiah very briefly here, he makes this point for us, actually all through the last part of Isaiah, but in chapter 42 and verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor will he make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he's established justice in the earth, and the coastlands will wait expectantly for him. That's talking about the suffering servant, the son of David, the one that Isaiah describes who would be born of a virgin, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the prince of peace. That's who he has in mind here. The one in chapter 53 by whose stripes we would be healed. And if you turn to Acts 2, as Peter now is preaching this good news because he's come and given himself as the Passover lamb for the world. And he's preaching this. And in verse 22, he says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, and God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. That's the predetermined plan of God. That's God's gracious choice. We did nothing to deserve the gift that God gave in Jesus Christ. And God planned that gift before the world was ever created. And he planned that whoever would trust in him, whoever would come to him as they saw this great love displayed upon the cross as his son has given himself. As Paul would say in Romans 5 and verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why did Christ die? Because God loves the world. And God so loves the world that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 16. And whoever means whoever. Put your trust in Jesus. Follow him. For 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4 says, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It's not new about God in Ezekiel 18. And in chapter 33, God said, As I live, I take no pleasure at all in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil way. Why then should you die, O house of Israel? Peter said the same thing. He said, God is waiting. He's patient. 
because he's not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God has called the world to salvation in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here's the good news. Jesus said, look, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Go tell everybody. Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You teach them to observe all things that I commanded you, and I'll be with you even to the end of the age. That's his invitation to you. I want you to just, I'm just check your songbook. Open it up to number seven, 674. Everyone get your songbook. If you have one of these, hold it up. Let me see. It says, I, uh, hold it up. I got see, there's a, see if you got one. Just two? Three. You're the four, five, there's the chosen. Six, seven, the chosen. You're the ones who are saved this morning. See, my sermon had not, you said, well, what, why them? Because they were chosen before. Well, well they just, it had nothing to do with anything that they've decided, they've thought. Before they got here, it was already determined. It was already decided. It had nothing to do with them. It was the choice that was made by me in this. That was, say, forget that. You know, well, no, I saved mine. <laughs> of course, for myself. I'll have to answer to my wife later. No, it's not that way. You, you get it. You see that song, I Have Decided to follow Jesus. That's what makes the difference. God loves everybody. He wants everyone to be saved. He calls to everyone. Be saved. You don't have to die. Come and join yourself with Jesus because he's the only one who can save you. There's no other power that can free you from sin, but his blood, and you need to be united with him, and you express that trust in me by confessing, I believe in Jesus. I want what he has to offer, and I want to be buried with him in the waters of baptism because that's what he's asked me to do so that I can be raised up a new creature by his blood and by his power, not my own, but trusting his promise and acting on his invitation. Now, if that's what you want to do, you're welcome to receive it. It's for you. God has already decided you can be saved. He wants you to be saved. He's ready to receive you. But you have to make a decision to receive his grace. And we invite you to do it this morning. We're here to welcome you and to assist you in putting on Christ in the grave of baptism, if that's what you would choose while we stand and sing the invitation song. The Lord is in his holy temple. Again, thanks for listening. If you live in north central Florida or you're just passing through, 
We would love to have you visit us at the Glen Springs Road Church of Christ. Also, check out our website, glenspringschurch.com. You can learn more about our church family and how to contact us. Until next time, God bless. Keep silence before